we are going to take a walk on the wild side. Chicago has no shortage of options these days for possible mascots. Hear me out. A couple of summers ago, it was an alligator dubbed Chance the Snapper in Humboldt Park. Then we had the piping plovers over at Montrose Beach. More recently, it's been a chonky snapping turtle in the Chicago River and even a den of playful foxes in Millennium Park. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to dig into just how we can better live alongside urban wildlife and even make our backyards and cityscape a more attractive home for different species. But first, we're going to go beyond pigeons, rats and geese. What animals can you expect to come across in and around the Chicago area? Well, joining us now is Al Scorch. He's one of the botany enthusiasts who was kayaking down the Chicago River when he came across the now famous Chunkosaurus. Welcome to Reset, Al. Hey, thanks for having me. Also with us is Tyler LaRiviere, Chicago Sun-Times photographer who captured the foxes in Millennium Park. And you can see those photos online at suntimes.com. Hey, Tyler. Good afternoon. And Seth Magley is director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at Lincoln Park Zoo. Welcome back, Seth. Glad to be here. So I'll start with you. Is it just us or is, is there just a lot more wildlife than usual right now? Well, it's springtime, of course, and that's when everything's waking up. The city's becoming a beautiful place again, and I think the animals notice that just as much as we do. Uh, So it's definitely a good time to get out and see some animals. Yeah. Well, Al, you and your colleague Joey Santori, you you were kayaking along the Chicago River. That's when you spotted this giant snapping turtle. We know it now as Chonkosaurus. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Oh, my God. That's a massive turtle. Is that a snapper? He's a snapper. That's a, a Chicago River snapper. <laughs> it's us. Love that clip. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad we have you here in studio, uh, Al. Take us back. How did you come across her, and had you ever seen anything like her on the river? Well, you can hear the amazement. She's ama- huge. Yeah, absolutely massive. You can hear the amazement in her voices. You can hear the excitement, right? And um, uh, we came across it because we were out there uh, – kind of making some botany videos uh, for Joey's channel, Crime Pace, but Botany Does It. It's a popular uh, botany channel on mm-hmm. YouTube. And uh, we get out there and, you know, kind of Joey goes all over the world looking at plants and finding a lot of animals. When you go looking for plants, you find animals, you get out into nature. So we were out there. It was a beautiful day uh, in Chicago. So we said, let's get on the river in a kayak. And uh, we do educational comedy, uh, you know, it's hard science and and uh, jokes, so we're out there. We banter. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so you, you focus more on botany, as you said, but in your search for different plant life, you're coming across a ton of different animal species, I, I can just imagine, right? Like, What else have you seen? What, what, what was the most unexpected animal that you've come across? Well, there's a lot of things. If you if you go check out some of the videos on Crime Pays, you can see all of these animal characters that uh, mostly Joey has come across. Uh, you know, lots of rattlesnakes, um, all kinds of beetles and bugs and stinging insects mm. and all the, all that good stuff, right? That everybody all of loves. My faves. Um, and uh, that was sarcasm. Yes, exactly. Mine too. <laughs> I'm like, Ugh. Um, but yeah, turtles, lizards, snakes, uh, coyotes, just kind of every everything that's out there. Yeah. Well, Tyler, this week we learned about the family of foxes that are making a home in Millennium mm-hmm. Park. You went out there to get some photos. I mean, first of all, were you scared? Um, not really. Yeah. Uh, how did it go? From from my chats with other people that had the chance to photograph them or see them prior to that and tip us off on it, they seemed a little skittish to humans. They weren't really aggressive. And, you know, you kind of go out there with these these ideas of you may not see them, you may see them. 
and just kind of hanging out there, chatting with some people. And then all of a sudden you just see them pop their heads out <laughs> and you're like, oh, those are real. Those are real foxes. And they pop their heads out. They'll look around and they'll play with each other. And if someone gets a little too close, they'll just hide back down in their hole. So then, are they more afraid of you then or? Um, I mean, if you're as long as you, people were able to get pretty close to them. OK. Um, but as long as you weren't like doing sudden movements or sudden noises and they were pretty curious. One of one of the things that was really fun was when I was laying down next to one of their dens to try to get up uh, for them to pop up to get a really nice close up shot of it. Um, one of the curious foxes came up and just looked at me and I'm laying down on the ground. I have my camera out and not making any sudden movements. And then all of a sudden he starts laying down, too. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I don't know if so he, he was, was like mimicking your Yeah, that's what, I was like, hmm. is he mimicking me? But Or was he just ready to sit down at the yeah. time? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want to issue a reminder to the folks listening. Do not approach a fox, please, even for the gram. Uh, Tyler, as a photographer, how do you prepare for assignments like this? Because, I mean, the reason I issued that warning is because wildlife, it, it can be mm -hmm. unpredictable. Yeah. So generally when uh, I do assignments like this or any types of assignments, when we were photographing the plovers, when we were photographing, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, crocodile or the alligator that we had years ago, we're not going out there with like our phones or like the smallest, shortest lens possible. We're, we're bringing like really long telephoto lenses and the, and the willingness to crop, be still, be far away mm -hmm. is, you know, we, we ourselves want to look out for our own safety, also the safety of the animals. You know, we don't want a situation where something has to happen because we were dumb. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just being patient and being willing to kind of see them in their habitat, see what boundaries they want to create, and not really trying to cross those boundaries. Yeah. Well, we've talked to you, Seth, on, on Reset before about coyotes being uh, common in urban areas. But foxes? Yeah, less common around Chicago. They're pretty common in some other cities. But I was actually really excited to hear about this family, particularly because we're seeing the coyotes increasing year by year and the foxes declining. You know, we really used to have two different species of fox that were pretty common, the gray and the red. The gray are essentially gone from this whole region. We do still have some red foxes hanging on, like like this particular group. Um, and I love to see them because I think they're beautiful. They're, they're a lot of fun to watch, and um, they play a really important role in our ecosystem. A good friend of the show, Dennis Rodkin, who's with uh, Crane's Chicago Business, he tweeted this morning that he stopped by Millennium Park to catch a glimpse of the foxes, but there was a, a gate and um, a sign up closing the area off to minimize potential stress to sensitive wildlife. Any safety things that we should know when it comes to, to foxes or just approaching wildlife in general? Yeah, in general, we tell people, observe, don't disturb. You know, it's not really so much about safety. I think foxes are not particularly dangerous, but it's more about the fact that if we're constantly approaching them, they may start to associate people with food. They may um, start trying mm. to change their behavior in a way that's not going to help them to survive and thrive. It's a little counterintuitive, but these urban animals often survive by avoiding us. They find these little pockets in our cities where they can live and do their thing, eat their normal prey, while not being kind of right in our faces. And the best thing we can do is to give them that space. If you're just joining us, this is Reset, and I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking about all the wildlife in Chicago and its suburbs, from river-snapping turtles to foxes in Millennium Park. Our guests today are Al Scorch, who discovered the turtle that we're calling Chonkosaurus, Chicago Sun-Times photographer Tyler LaRiviere, and Seth Magley from the Urban Wildlife Institute. We want to open up the phones and hear from you, too. So what questions do you have about the animals that live among us here in the Chicagoland area? Are you seeing bats in Winnetka, maybe, or 
raccoons in Forest Park, maybe coyotes near Uptown. What questions do you have about the animals in our midst? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. Again, that number is 866-915-WBEZ. All right, so has Chicago always been a haven, just so we're clear, for for this kind of urban wildlife, or, or are we seeing something bigger right now? Well, I think it's both. I think Chicago has always been a biodiversity hotspot amidst Midwestern cities. We've done an amazing job of conserving green space and habitat for different species. But it also seems like these incidents of these charismatic species that the community rallies around are on the rise. And you outlined many of them. And I, I love to see it. I love to see our community embracing some of these species, giving them names, um, really rallying around them as a part of Chicago. Al, it's interesting because the, the river has this reputation for uh, being... Not the cleanest, right? Uh, even in your, your kayaking video, there were discarded um, cigarettes and, and syringe needles that we mm-hmm. could see. Uh, Chonkasaurus herself is, is resting on this pile of what looks like rusty chains. That's right. What was your take <laughs> as you're heading down the river? Uh, that it's that the river is kind of the lowest point, right? Everything goes down into the water, right? So that's something we learned from our friends at Urban Rivers who uh, plant these uh, bioswales, these floating gardens, and they're doing a ton of restoration. All the trash from the street, all the runoff, it goes down into the water. So you see these species, and Seth may be able to speak to this uh, more scientifically, more informed than I can, but you have these really resilient species like a common snapper who can survive, you know, even in the most adverse uh, environments. And I think that's kind of the, you know, subtext of why Chonkasaurus is such a champion is yeah. like, you're surviving in, in the muck and, and in the hardship and, and you're this strong, you know, just prominent creature. It's very Chicago. <laughs> it is very Chicago. I mean, despite the river having, having room for improvement, let's say, let's say that when it comes to cleanliness, mm-hmm. I mean, you find it still to be a, a place where a lot of diverse plant life is thriving or not Ab- so much. Absolutely. And to, uh, regarding what Seth said, you know, this is a place where animals can go and be away from humans and avoid that contact. These kind of those marginal areas in the city, you know, even in Millennium Park where there's, you know, places that are away from the walkways and these kind of little uh, places where animals can hide and have habitat and have mm-hmm. dens and nests and all these things and the magic hedge up on Montrose uh, with the piping plovers, you know, these margins are so important to to the urban wildlife here. Yeah. Can more diverse plant life be what's attracting these different animals, Seth? Yeah, I definitely think that's a part of it. We've done a lot of urban greening. A lot of organizations have done a lot of work on that, and the the wildlife are noticing, right? They're finding these green spaces that we build, which is part of what we want to happen. Yeah. Tyler, you're you're going all over the city on all these different assignments. Even if you aren't on the, the wildlife beat, I'm imagining that you're coming across different kinds, you know, when you're working, right? Especially when you've got, I think, probably a photographer eye, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're noticing details and movement <clears throat> around you. Tell me more about, like, unexpected wildlife that you've you've come across just working in this city. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's striking to see even common wildlife like coyotes. Everyone's kind of seen one or heard one in and around their neighborhood, but it's still striking to see them walking across the streets in Lakeview or going through the trash cans of Uptown, um, but also, you know, even seeing what we assume is common animals like dogs and cats just kind of roaming around, um, it's 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 very, very striking. I would say kind of the genesis of this, like, idea of, like, 
social media kind of gra- Chicago social media gravitating towards like animals. The genesis was like, you know, about 10 years ago with like the crime scene cat phenomenon where photographers who were sent to crime scenes just waiting would just be like, oh, hey, there's there's cats just walking around. Let me take a photo and tweet it out. So crime scene cats, is that what I heard you say? Yep. Explain. So it's it's while we're waiting, you know, at the crime scenes for, for you know, the police to do their job. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get bored and we want to take other photos and, and there's not a huge amount except for cops flashing their lights. But then you'll just see like a cat or two, stray cats just walking through the crime scene. And <laughs> someone decided to take a picture. It got a lot of social media and uh. everyone's just kind of gravitated Hence, to that crime scene cats yep <laughs> their new name chonkasaurus crime scene cats i get it there's a theme running theme here mm-hmm. all right so i did open up the phones and guess what we have callers so let's 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 hear from some of them first up is hillary in rogers park hey hillary welcome to reset hi thank you for having me sure what do you want to share with us um i just wanted to talk a little bit about um domestic rabbits versus wild rabbits there's a huge problem with people dumping uh wild ra- or, i'm sorry dumping domestic rabbits outside uh, thinking that they can survive like wild rabbits, and they cannot. And um, actually, uh, Red Door Animal Shelter in Rogers Park keeps a running tally on how many they rescue sent, uh, from Easter to Easter. And right now they're already up to, like, mm. I think 30 since last Easter um, because people get them and they don't really do the research, and um, they think yeah. that uh, they can just dump them outside. So I was just going to say, like, wild rabbits are usually um, brown almost always and look more athletic. And if you ever see a rabbit that's any other color pretty much like white or black or anyone with lop ears long ears those rabbits do not belong outside and they need to be rescued thanks for sharing that hillary appreciate your call let's hear from adam in forest park hey adam welcome to the show hello hi thank you what are your thoughts on on the urban wildlife we're seeing in the area well i've lived in forest park for about 30 years and um, we get raccoons skunks and if you just take a walk by the uh, this Plains River there that's real close by, you get uh, uh, water birds of all kinds, turtles, fox, all kinds of things. Yeah. Thanks, Adam, for, for sharing. I'm curious, Seth, about Hillary's uh, comments there. I mean, do we have a, a rabbit problem here? Well, I'd certainly agree with her that people should not be releasing these domesticated animals. She's absolutely right that they're not prepared to survive. Um we really don't want to be releasing any animals that don't belong in this ecosystem out onto the streets. It's not good for them, and it's not good for us. Yeah. Are you seeing crime scene rabbits? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no crime scene You know, I'm curious what you all think. Why is it that we just, on a, as a whole, we just come, become so enraptured by animals in the city? I mean, I feel like no one blinks an eye at, at pigeons or, or geese, really, but uh, show us a, a really huge river turtle or you know a piping plover and we go nuts what do you think it is i i think something really deep about it is that human beings are part of nature and we've evolved in this ecology and we have evolved alongside these plants and alongside these animals and so when we see these animals we see something of our deeper nature you know and it's kind of this reminder that in this context of just like you know, concrete and buildings and trains and cars and all of this inorganic stuff and unnatural stuff that there is a natural world out there that is just pushing through to survive and thrive. And we see some of ourselves in those animals. That's my take. That's your take. I I, I agree. I agree. Let's squeeze in one more caller. Here's Steve in Logan Square. Hey, Steve. Yeah, I, uh, snakes. I've been in Chicago <laughs> 40 years. I I've never seen a snake, not even a dead one. We got, we got some we got snakes 
Do we have snakes in the area? Good question, Steve. I'm looking at you, Seth, because I don't know who else can answer that. <laughs> we absolutely do, and none of them are harmful to people. But, for example, at uh, Nature Boardwalk, the nature area next to the zoo, we've definitely found our share of garter snakes. Ooh. And a little harmless green snakes. We've also studied smooth green snakes that live in the forest preserves around the city. So, yeah, there are, there are snakes. What do you do when you system. come across a snake? Uh, the same thing when I see most things. I observe, don't disturb. I'll try to get a picture often, but I uh, try not to, to bother them. They're, so they're don't doing run their like thing. what my instincts are telling there's, me? There's no reason. Like I said, we have no uh, poisonous or venomous snakes in this area that you really need to be concerned about. Okay, okay, good tip. All right, we've been talking with Chicago Sun-Times photographer Tyler LaRiviere and Chicago botany enthusiast Al Scorch. You can see him on the YouTube channel, Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't. Thank you both for stopping by. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about how Chicago wildlife, well, it seems to be having a moment. we got plovers piping and giant turtles snapping and a whole fox family that's just roaming around. So joining us now to discuss how we can better coexist with wildlife in Chicago and the suburbs is Seth Magley from the Urban Wildlife Institute and Rebecca Fife, who's an urban wildlife manager and CEO of Landmark Hest. Good to see you, Rebecca. Thanks for joining. Good to see you, Sasha. Thank you. Of course, Seth has stuck around here, and we want to hear from you folks. We're still taking calls. What questions do you have about the animals that live among us here in the area? Or do you have some not-so-cuddly wildlife in your area that maybe you want advice on how to handle? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. Again, 866-915-WBEZ. So let's hear a bit about you, Rebecca, and, and what you do. I receive about 100 telephone calls every day from homeowners in the Chicago area. And the most common complaint we hear is uh, raccoons, squirrels, and mice getting into the home. And we also hear a lot about animals that are bothering homeowners but that stay out in the yard like chipmunks and skunks. Uh, And are people panicking? Are they generally just trying to get rid of them? What are the questions? Well, some animals like raccoons, it's pretty obvious when they've torn into your eaves or ripped off a roof vent. Oh, yes. Because you can hear them, you can see the damage that they've caused, and they need to be removed. Um, but there are other species where they can cause damage that's more insidious, and people often find out after the fact. So, for instance, someone lists their home for sale, the home inspector comes out, and they find extensive tunneling and damage to the insulation and mouse drop things that needs to be remediated before the time of a sale. So Uh, we we deal with a lot of calls like that, too. So this is why we thought it was important to include you, a wildlife manager, in this conversation uh, about living side by side with urban animals, because we we don't want to keep safety and and overpopulation problems uh, in mind. We want to keep those things in mind. But when you think about the city and the suburbs, are there certain things, certain animals, Rebecca, that maybe pose a bigger problem? Than others? There are. And I think that bats are a really wonderful example about how, with some safety information, we can really uh, effectively coexist with wildlife. So, all bats that are in Illinois are protected. Bats are an incredibly important species. They're pollinators, others eat insects, um, and they're, they're very ecologically important. And they also have some threats from white nose syndrome and habitat loss. So, it's incredibly important that we support them. And bats generally mind their own business, and they're found if you use bat listening devices, you can find them in every neighborhood in the city and every town in the 
the suburbs. So we live side by side with bats, and we don't even generally know it. And sometimes bats make a colony in people's attics. And if they stay up in the attic, many people don't know about it for a long time, again, until they have a home inspection or go to sell their (laughs) home or something like that. But every now and then a bat will come down to the living quarters of the home. And bats are Illinois' uh, number one rabies carrier, about um, 83 bats on average per year test positive for rabies. And if someone wakes up with a bat in their bedroom, that bat needs to be captured and sent for rabies testing to make sure that a person who was asleep or if an infant was alone with the bat or an intoxicated person who couldn't report whether you know they had an interaction with the bat or not, um, that the bat goes for testing. And because we can educate the public about this protocol to test bats that actually have human contact um, and educate the public about the importance of leaving bats alone otherwise Mm -hmm. and letting them coexist, uh, that's really an important way where we can do outreach so that people can live safely with that species, appreciate that species, but also know how to handle it if uh, they have an interaction. And Seth, let's talk more about why having this diverse population of animals is important. I know that you also, you helped create the city's wildlife and coexistence plan back in 2021. So talk about that and and any updates you can give us. Yeah, we're absolutely trying to change this notion of what, what do we do? What do we think when we first see animals to think about coexistence first. Now, we can't always coexist with all animals in all situations, and I think Rebecca would agree with me on that. Mm-hmm. But we want that to be the default uh, condition, and that's really what the, the Wildlife Management and Coexistence Plan that we wrote with the Animal Care and Control Department is, is intended to do, is to think about how can we how can we first think about ways that we can coexist with these different species, which can include things like bats. I want to briefly point out that actually in, I think, 2019 or 2020, the little brown bat was the official city mammal of Chicago. Was it? It was. <laughs> Wow. When we talk about coexistence, right, there are pros to living with coyotes, right? That, yeah, that's absolutely right. They're they're um, eating, they're predating a lot of the kind of animals we don't want to see so many of in our city, things like mice and rats and squirrels. Um, so that's part of it. But I also think part of it is is less tangible. It's just that notion of of awe that you feel when you wake up and you see a coyote crossing the street and you just think, I didn't expect to see that here. I didn't realize that I live in a place that can support an animal like that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I I think they provide a lot of things for us, some of them easy to measure and some of them not so easy. Let's jump to the phones. We've got a caller here, Misha in Plainfield. Hi, Misha. Welcome to Reset. Hi. um, Thanks for taking my call. I had a question. I had a family of foxes living in my backyard earlier in the spring. It seems like they've gone on their way. They were living between my shed and my neighbor's shed and pretty much just watched them, but was kind of a little nervous because I have a small dog and we were just like mainly walking her. But I just wanted to know like how to keep her safe and let them have their peace too. Good question. You want to take that, Rebecca? Sure. So when people have foxes denning on their property, we generally encourage them to leave the foxes alone, just like you did, and let them leave on their own and perhaps walk very small dogs on leashes. Um, Foxes are a lot smaller than people imagine them to be. When people call me daily with fox sightings or coyote sightings, I always like to ask them, how much do you think that animal weighs that you saw? And they'll say, oh, I think the coyote weighed about 80 
pounds, or I think the fox weighed about 45 pounds. But uh, the <laughs> That top, would be me. Yeah, the top <laughs> weight for a coyote is 35 pounds. Most of them are closer to 18. For foxes, uh, they're much smaller yet. There's foxes around 8 pounds, um, and it's just 12 pounds. And uh, so they're a lot smaller than people think. So if you have a, a 35-pound dog, I don't know how much the, the collar's dog weighs, but um, a fox really wouldn't be uh, a threat to you know a medium or a large-sized dog. But a tiny dog, a chihuahua, I would definitely keep that on a leash while there's foxes around. Good tip. Here is Chris in Evanston. Hey, Chris. Hi, it's Cliff, not Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Welcome to the show, Cliff. Did you have a question? Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, not a question. Uh, my friend lives uh, around Pulaski and Bryn Mawr, and uh, there's a condominium complex there called the Conservancy, and there's a pond in the middle, and then it borders Peterson Park and a lot of cemeteries. So there's a lot of open space there, and there's a lot of deer, sometimes as many as eight or ten deer. Now and then um, animal control has to cull some of them because they uh, – reproduce and then sometimes in the winter time uh, there's a pond in the middle of the complex and uh, deer uh, falls into the pond and it's a little iced over and they have to call for for them to be rescued so there's a lot of deer there yeah. now and you see coyotes too okay that's my con thanks for sharing cliff appreciate your call seth you were nodding your head there you you agree and deer are a challenge one of the things that we see in a lot of places where i work is that people are feeding the deer and that's not something that you ever want to see i've that seen that too their numbers yeah i've it's, seen it's that not too good and um yeah, it's a real challenge. If you went back in time, of course, uh, what was controlling the populations of deer in this area probably was wolves. And uh, there's a famous saying in ecology that, well, if you eliminate the wolf, you inherit its job. So now we have that job of what do we do about mm. these populations of deer? There are really no easy answers, as that caller indicated. Uh, but I bet Rebecca deals with uh, some of these issues probably from time to time. Yeah, we do. We get a lot of calls about uh, fawns, actually, in people's yards where they will see a speckled fawn and they'll say, you know, there's no mommy deer around. So I have this abandoned fawn. But uh, what's happening there is the mom usually just comes back at night to nurse the fawn. And the fawn is alone during the day, holding perfectly still, and that's perfectly normal. So if someone sees a fawn in their yard, it is probably not um, injured or orphaned, and it just needs to be left alone for mom to, to come back and care for it until it's independent. Now, what's interesting is that in addition to wildlife management, Rebecca, you also happen to be a beekeeper yes, and a gardener who's also wearing a lovely necklace today. Is that a necklace? Yes, this is a real bug. I it's just noticed that. <laughs> giant rhinoceros it beetle plated in copper. Massive. I wish folks could see that. we got to get a picture and post it online. Uh, you know, whenever we have conversations around gardening, um, since you're a gardener, I mean, a lot of our listeners, they call in with questions about what they can plant in their backyards or, or on their balconies that would attract more wildlife. We actually get those questions. So what has worked for you? The resource that I really love to turn to when I try to create a more pollinator-friendly garden is the Chicago Botanic Garden has a page on their website about supporting monarch butterflies and supporting pollinators. And they have some really great information because not all milkweed is created equal. There are some uh, species of milkweed that uh, are even better for monarchs because of their alkaloid levels. So mm. it's important to not just want to plant milkweed and support pollinators, but to also um, choose the right the right uh, variety of those plants. And the Botanic Garden is a wonderful resource. What happens if, if these efforts lead to pest problems? 
What should folks do? I think that's okay. I can give you an example. So um, Montessori School of Inglewood, which is a fabulous school, the museum campus, the Museum of Science and Industry, and the shed collaborated to build them this gorgeous vegetable garden so that they would have access to wonderful, healthy food. And they had celebrity chefs from all over the city through the Trotter Foundation come in and actually teach the kids and their families in a beautiful kitchen that they built how to prepare these foods. And the kids weren't the only ones who loved the healthy food. Well, the pests did too. So they reached out and I consulted and I said, well, we're going to donate your pest control pro bono, but I want to use a rodenticide free solution that relies mostly on trapping for rats Mm -hmm. and site mitigation. So we just really thoughtfully approached that site, making it less appealing to urban pests. And we're bringing a rodenticide free approach so that that food can be enjoyed by people and not predated by uh, the wildlife. Thank you for sharing that. Let's take another call. This is Neche in Logan Square. Hi, welcome to Reset. Hi. So I'm mostly out at night, and I hear night jars circling overhead all the time. And I've been told that night jars eat insects, but I see almost no insect life in Chicago. So I was wondering if you know what they're hunting or if you have any thoughts about insect life in Chicago. So I hear circling. Are you talking about birds? Are night jars birds? Yeah, yeah, they're predatory birds. Yeah. Seth, you can take this one. There's a lot more insect life in Chicago than you think. Uh, Between mosquitoes (laughs) and moths and all different sorts of things, it's amazing. Like a lot of our wildlife, how good they are at not being detected by us. You kind of look around and you think, oh, yeah, there's, there's really no bugs for them to eat. But if you really studied you know, some streetlights at night, if you really kind of zoom in, you become aware that there's an entire wealth of of insect biodiversity uh, that's really all around us. So what do you hope to see change? Um, and I want to hear from both of you in, in how we interact and coexist with wildlife in Chicago. You first, Seth. Yeah, well, I think to me, it's just the first step is to get people to celebrate this wildlife to not every species and not every place, but most of the time, most of our interactions with these species are very positive. When you hear a bird singing, when you see a squirrel doing something cute, these are these little micro interactions that enrich our lives, I think, in ways we don't really realize um, until something happens that makes us stand up and take notice, like there's suddenly a family of foxes in Millennium Park. So I think that's the first step. And then the second step is to think about, okay, what kind of city could we build that would have the wildlife community we want? When we get to decide what belongs here, what do we want to share the space with? And how can we be thoughtful about that and do it on purpose, not just let whatever shows up shows up Mm -hmm. and end up with these pest issues and things that Rebecca's talking about? But how do we curate the kind of wildlife that we want to be a part of our lives? And those are the conversations that I'd like to be a part of. You agree, Rebecca? I do. And I think that with in terms of human wildlife conflict, I'd like people to approach it with an eye on prevention. Once there are raccoons or squirrels living in the attic, there aren't immediate solutions that are a win-win for the people and the wildlife. It's disruptive to whatever you know, part of the life cycle, the mother raccoon might be raising her babies there, and it may cause, you know, a lot of damage to the home to leave them until the babies are reared. So some really difficult choices have to be made. So I would really like to see people inspect their homes from foundation to attic, sealing wildlife out, because the most humane solution and the most economical solution is to prevent wildlife intrusion into people's homes. So we've been talking about foxes and deer, but of course, Lord knows, tons of neighborhoods around here have stray cats. This is a good time to bring in our final caller, Jessica in Arcadia Terrace. Hey, Jessica. 
Hi, good morning or afternoon. Uh, we have a colony of feral cats in my neighborhood, and the majority of us have decided to, you know, we did the, the trap and release. They've been neutered and spayed. They are very wild, um, but they're fed by the neighbors, and even they put up little houses and stuff for them in the winter. I personally appreciate it. We don't have many rats in my neighborhood. Um, it's, they do, unfortunately, kill some birds, but we've had some pushback from some neighbors. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on maintaining one of these colonies. Pros, cons, that sort of thing. Thanks, Jessica. Seth? Yeah, my thoughts are many and varied because uh, these issues with with these cats are very complicated and people are very emotionally attached to their pets, of course. Um, And I think that unfortunately there's not really a lot of scientific research right now about what are they doing about, for example, many people strongly believe that these cat colonies can control our, our rat population. And I can tell you as a scientist, we don't really have much evidence on that one way or the other. We really don't know. But what we do know as this caller pointed out, is that they do kill a fair number of birds and and other small mammals that that really do belong in this system. So there are definitely some cons. I think the pros need to be further explored. Um, But it's another one of these examples of an urban wildlife issue that's complicated. And right now it's kind of different neighborhoods are taking different tacks. Everything is a little bit haphazard. And I think that we need to come together and have a deeper discussion about what is the role of these cats in this landscape and how do those pros and cons balance. We'll leave it there. We've been talking with Seth Magley from the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo and Rebecca Fife, who's an urban wildlife manager and CEO of Landmark Pest. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much.